can go. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Leviticus chapter 11, although that's sort of deceptive since we're really not going to spend much time in chapter 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15. So you thought, did you bring, you know, you forgot to bring your pillow and your blanket. (laughs) No, we're not. You know, as you, if you've been reading ahead, which uh, we always encourage you to do so that you're familiar with uh, the scriptures as we work our way through the Old Testament here, in particular Leviticus, um, as you, if you were uh, doing that, you'll realize uh, that we're going into the chapters that uh, illustrate cleanliness and un, uh, uncleanness and defilement and purity and all, and Again, just you know, looking through this, you uh, have to answer the question that was is upon every heart when it comes to God. How do I come to God, and what do I bring? You know, as we've learned last week, one does not come into the presence of God in some haphazard way. Uh, God is holy. And we are not. We should never act presumptuously uh, in the presence of God or in approaching to Him. And so what's happening in these particular chapters uh, is God is revealing to His chosen people what is required uh, of them for intimate fellowship. He's teaching them what it means to be separated from the ways of the world and the things that are on the earth that can defile and make one unclean, either morally or ceremonially. The Again, the tabernacle was symbolic of something. And it is symbolic in the New Testament of the believer. We are now the temple of God. And in a lot of these restrictions that we, recover, we covered in the past few weeks in regards to the priests and how they were to conduct their service, so vitally important. And we're to learn that we as believers are to be careful how we conduct ourselves, and especially in the presence of God. And then there's things that we can do and the congregation could do in Israel that would defile themselves and make them impure ceremonially as well as morally, and God wanted them to know. He didn't leave it up to them to figure it out by trial and error. And you'll see, if you've read through these chapters, you'll see that it's quite detailed in some way. And so the idea of separation from the unclean, the profane, the defiled, and dead things were serving to put in the people's minds that they are to be separated from the world and they are a separate people from all other peoples. They are God's special treasure. Think about that. In Exodus 19.5, he says, Therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. What an honor, what a privilege to be chosen by God to be part of his eternal family. We should never underestimate what that really means. You know, eternity is an awful long time. Forever is... Just a long time. (laughs) And so uh, it was every aspect of their life God was concerned about. He didn't leave any area really unaddressed. And he wanted them to take notice from the food that they ate to how they interacted with the creation, especially since they were fallen and, and the creation itself was in a fallen state. So God is instructing the nation through these particular chapters on the civil and the ceremonial laws uh, since they were being called out of the world and to become his special treasure. And you can't help but notice when you read through this that God in no way wanted to be associated with death in in any form. And this is important. Uh, He was showing them what the things that belonged to God and the things that were okay for general use. And there was to be boundaries, learning the boundaries of what things belong to God and what can be used just as an ordinary thing. 
These boundaries are important for us to understand in our relationship with God. And so these chapters communicate that, these laws of purity, uh, things that are pure and things that are not pure. And, and then chap, you know, just so what my intention is here this morning is just give you a quick overview so you can relax and put your pillows and blankets away. We're not going through every chapter. I'm going to leave it up to you to know, uh, do a little homework so you can verify what I'm saying here. But I want to go into the New Testament and sort of bring the parallel and the application that is for us as believers today. Uh, chapter 11 deals with the distinctions in the food that was permitted, foods that were forbidden. God lays it out for them. Uh, the issue, again, of impurity is connected with the clean animals and the unclean animals. There's creatures, as, we, as you will read there, creatures in the rivers and in the seas that were acceptable and some unacceptable. Birds and insects, what could be eaten and what should not be handled or touched. And so God was laying it out there for them. You know, as you read through there, I, I, I have no, zero temptation to uh, eat a vulture. <laughs> Anybody up for buzzard stew, you know? I mean, the, the, there's no draw there. Flying insects? Yeah. Knock yourself out, right? <laughs> so, God was concerned about those things. In chapter 12, he uh, treats the laws about the purification that related to childbirth. You know, be fruitful and multiply. Well, there's there's issues there because you'll, again, understand that anything that dealt with blood, life is in the blood. Blood was to be handled and dealt with very delicately when it came to things of God. And so uh, the same would be when uh, there's the blood that happens at childbirth. So God lays out the purification that would be necessary uh, uh, for the ladies once they gave birth to children. And then chapters 13 and 14, uh, it handles a number of case, uh, uh, cases and, that the ancient Jews would consider uh, as health issues, uh, skin diseases, mildew, uh, mildew on the clothing, mildew in the house, uh, how it was to be dealt with. And chapter 15 uh, the problems with the impurity related to the uh, genital organs and the various body functions. So, so quite detailed of, of some of the things. Uh, but um, think about this for a moment. Moses is leading a nation of God's people, of about two million people, out of the land of Egypt. There's so many different levels to maintain and, and to keep in order just to sustain life. It could be a real train wreck without order and understanding in a, a camp of two million people. You know, put yourself in that camp for a moment. Two million people. Now, I've been in some cities of two million people and some of them in third world countries, and I'm telling you, human beings are messy. And we actually stink when we don't wash, you know, that kind of thing. You, you just Can you imagine putting yourself in that camp? Out in the wilderness. Now, being out in the wilderness and in the middle of the desert, there's really no temptation for anybody to want to run away. You run away too far and you're going to die of thirst or hunger or both or get fried, you know, from the heat or freeze from the cold. So, you know, they're, they're sort of stuck right there at the base of the mountain. But that's what's going on. Think of what they had experienced. Their, their generations prior for about 300 years or so after the death of Joseph were in bondage. Their male children were being uh, aborted, forced abortion, as it were, drowned in the River Nile and all, just, you know, infanticide being put upon them. They were enslaved, hard bondage to the Egyptians. And so the hand of God punished them, the Egyptians, for their sins against his people. And under the guidance of Moses and Aaron, he brought them out. And when he brought them out, I mean, they brought out a mother load of riches, thanks to the ladies who hit up the neighbors. Hey, do you mind if I borrow this? Oh, hey, whatever you want. Take this, take this. Just get out of here, you know. And they were laden down with the back wages, as it were. You know, God is always good at taking care of his own. You might be 
mistreated. You might be, uh, somebody might deal with you in an underhanded way. But you know what? Vengeance is the Lord. He will repay. God has a way of making things right, and so he did so. They came out with great wealth. God used the Israelis to plunder them, as it were, for their sins. And then the next thing you know, they wake up uh, after having seen the destruction of their enemies in the Red Sea at the Mount of Sin- Mount Sinai, and God's introducing himself. And when God introduces himself, this would be chapter 19 and 20 of, of Exodus, they fl- immediately flip out. Uh, I mean, you know, they realize that when in the presence of God, it's very possible they could die. And, you know, uh, with death on the line, they figured it would be uh, not good for long-term health. (laughs) So they made a deal, and they committed all communications to Moses. Moses, you talk to God and tell us what he says, and, and then we'll... We'll respond, and then you tell God what we're saying, and, and that was a good choice. That was a good move on their part, or they never would have made it out of the wilderness. <laughs> I mean, it's just the way it is. And um, I, I wanted to point out something here, because we've been praying for revival, and revival is necessary in the life of a believer on a regular basis. We think about revival, we should think something that was once alive is now dead. It needs to come back to life. And I will submit to you that this actually is a picture of revival. The children of Israel, they're at the base of the mountain, trembling in fear, just flipping out because, I mean, we're going to die. When God speaks, it just just shatters their hearts in a sense. They're just out of their minds like this is too intense. But I would submit to you that this is a picture of what the process of revival looks like in the beginning stages. And what I mean by that is that when we get serious in our relationship with God and we realize that we need Him more than any, we need anything else and that we want to draw near Him, the very first thing that it begins to happen to us is He begins to take us apart. He begins to show us what our fallen nature is really like and who we really are. And it's painful, it hurts. It, it causes fear and trembling. It's not something you want to uh, experience, really. You just soon deny it and run from it and hide. That's what exactly how they felt. We see Paul in Romans chapter 8 crying out in this experience that he had. Who shall deliver me from this dead man, this fallen nature that is within it's so corrupt, what shall I do, you know? Romans eight, twenty-two through 25. For I, he says, I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. I want to do what's right, so to speak. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law in my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I might serve the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. Now, back in the camp of Israel here, with these experiences that they've gone through firmly entrenched within their minds, they are now willing to obey Moses. Okay, let's build the temple, the tabernacle, and let's listen to what Moses has to say from the mouth of God. You know, they needed strong leadership at that time. I mean, they're coming out, They need to reorganize their new lives. Nobody's lived out in a wilderness like this. How are we going to survive? They're going to have to learn to trust God. God brought them out there into the wilderness where, by the way, there was nothing but sand, scrub weeds, and a mountain. How are we going to survive? Well, you're just going to have to trust God. That is the very first step you must learn at conversion. When God pulls you out of the world and brings you into himself, you learn to trust him, that he's in control and he's able to bring water out of a rock. He can bring manna from heaven. None of these things 
are impossible. Just think about the magnitude of what went on. Now, they weren't supposed to stay there for 40 years, but they did because of their unfaithfulness to God. But think about that miracle, sustaining a nation in the wilderness for 40 years, food, water, and their shoes didn't wear off their feet nor their clothes off their back. Incredible provision. And then we wonder, is God going to be able to supply to pay our phone bill, you know, or our light bill? I mean, let's get a grip here. Wake up. I mean, God is still on the throne and in control, and he can be trusted and should be trusted, and to do otherwise is an insult to him. And so this is what we need to learn. God has pulled us out of the world, out of the bondage of sin, brought us into himself through the Red Sea, baptized us into himself. And now we're sitting at his feet, learning his ways, learning to walk with him. And see, this is the thing that concerns me as a pastor. You know, you, uh, I've had counseling sessions over the years, and one of the frustrations that people seem to have when they change jobs and they go into a new job with great optimism uh, and they find out that they don't really know what is required of them in their new job, and so they quickly become frustrated. One of the things that's important as an employer uh, is to define the job that you want your new employee to do. Otherwise, that person will be frustrated. They won't really know or understand what's expected of them. And so I find this parallel in the church. Many people come to Christ. They have no idea what this new life entails completely. They just know that they met Jesus, which is a good thing. And they know that God is real and that they've, they're forgiven. But how do I walk with God? I mean, there's people who've been in the church their whole life. And they have no idea how to really walk with God. They don't know how to relate to their old nature. They don't get it. And there's a frustration. And they begin to try to just work it out themselves and try to figure it out themselves. And it's a life of frustration. And I feel for that. That's why I spend a lot of time teaching the scriptures, trying to bring forth, not just from my own experience, but what the scriptures are actually saying. You can teach, you can teach from the Bible, but are you teaching the Bible? Because the Bible has the answers. If we just take what is written there, Paul, this is what Paul was doing. In planting these churches and bringing people to Christ, he was teaching them how to walk with God, how to deal with uncleanness, how to deal with impurity, how to, how to stay separated, as it were, as God's special people unto him. And so this is what's needed in the church today, just the simple teaching and applying of God's word to our life. And uh, let's not make it any more complicated to that. Uh, and I'm a simple guy. I like to keep things sort of simple in that regard. So this concept of separation from the uh, unclean and the defiled and the impure things uh, is quite applicable to you and I. It was applicable to them uh, at that time, centuries ago, and it is applicable to us today. We're called out of the world. We're called out from the bondage of sin. You know, Some of us were saved in a dramatic fashion and others not so much. doesn't really matter, but every believer who is born again by the Spirit of God. We didn't save ourselves, as we were saying this morning. We didn't save ourselves. We can't heal ourselves. We need God. We are absolutely dependent upon Him. And so immediately upon being born again, the Spirit of God takes up residence within us. And that is just an amazing thing. You know, the presence of God filled the tabernacle there. The Shekinah was there, a pillar of cloud by day, fire by night. God's presence was there. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you was the promise to the Israelites, and it's the promise to us. We have the Spirit of God. Though we may grieve him, though we may quench the Spirit, he will never leave us. He will always be there to watch over us with great jealousy to draw us to himself. That is his role. That is his mission. And so the Holy Spirit takes up that residence in the one who confesses Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so we're justified, as it were, by the blood of Christ, and we're made acceptable to God. So as God looks on your life, and he looks on my life, he's seeing you and I in Christ. He's seeing us complete. He's seeing us through that blood sacrifice. And that's what we call theologically being positionally in Christ. Now, working out in our life is experientially called sanctification. God is setting us apart from the things that defile. And this is uh, the, the part that's tricky for us. This is the part that we need to learn. Okay, how do we do this? How do, how do we come to God? And what do we bring? How do we present ourselves and all? 
so God, as he instructed the Israelites, is instructing us today. And I thought the best way for us to grasp this is simply taking us through what Paul has shared uh, with the churches in Galatia. Uh, Galatia is a, a providence in Asia Minor, and there were several churches that Paul planted there. And then he wrote the, the epistle to the Galatians for that church, that letter to be circulated among those churches so that uh, they would be instructed doctrinally, and then how to apply that doctrine, as it were, to their lives. And so uh, that was the idea there with this. As, before we jump into that, it's, it's, I think it's important to sort of understand how uh, we're put together. And, it, you know, and understanding who you are and being aware of, uh, of it before God is important. Before we were saved, we were dead in our sin and in our trespasses. Our spirit was dead. It, has, it was separated from God. There was no uh, continuity with ourselves in the Lord. And the only one thing that could atone for our sin was this blood sacrifice of Christ. Someone had to pay for the crimes that were committed by mankind. And so we understand all that through uh, this sacrifice of sin. But what can be easily overlooked is that the new nature, or the old nature, in us is not eradicated at new birth. It doesn't die. It's not dead. The old nature still exists within every believer. And there are those who teach that the old nature is eradicated and that it is dead and that there are no inner conflicts going on within the believer because now from that point forward you're born again it's all hunky-dory and it's all roses well i'm not sure exactly what book these people might be reading but i'm pretty sure that's not found in the pages of scripture actually the, the very opposite and this is what i felt was important for us as a church and i think it's important for the church today that we understand uh our old nature, that it is not eradicated at new birth, and that it is our flesh, our carnal lower nature is not dead. It's an actually radical opposition to the new spirit, that supernatural spirit man that we've been given at new birth. Remember, Jesus said, you must be born again, born of the spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And they're, according to Galatians 5, Verses 16 through 18, uh, Paul makes that very clear about this war, this opposition uh, that they are to each other. He says, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. And so we have this lower flesh nature living in opposition to the new supernatural spirit man within. And so ideally after conversion, it's the new spirit man in us that is able to subdue this carnal nature. And so as you go through Paul's letters, you'll see him address this to all the churches. This is not some new concept that he introduced to only one church, but to all the believers. In particular here, he reminds the Galatian believers that they should stand fast in what Christ had accomplished for them. Stand fast in the liberty where Christ has made you free. Don't go back under the law. The law can never impart to you what you need. The law is only going to tell you that you are a sinner and that you don't measure up. It's going to it's going to condemn you if you fail. It's going to puff you up if you are doing it. It has no power to impart to you so that you can overcome your fallen nature. It only points out and measures where you're at. And so he, Paul elaborates on these things. And actually what he indicates through the scriptures is that in order for us to really have victory over the flesh is by giving up and yielding our will to the Spirit who's so willing to help us and empower us and transform us so that we can subdue the old nature. Now, here's 
the trick, so to speak. Here's the, the linchpin of it all. We must understand what our fallen nature really is. Because if you deny it and you don't own it, you're going to live with it. And it's going to hassle you a lot more than you want it to. It's just the way it is. And so Paul gives evidence of this lower nature that we have to deal with in verses uh, chapter 5, 19 through uh, 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. So apparently there's more than this. That the, in other words, there's nothing that the flesh won't do to defile itself. It's just the way it is. And then he says, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so Paul is making it clear. You cannot live after the flesh and survive as a believer. You'll die. It'll, living after the flesh will separate you from the presence of God. He's holy. He's just. Now, we're not saved by our works. That's not what he's communicating at all. But I think it's important that we understand these. I've taken the time to sort of define these just so that we are reminded of these things. What is adultery? Well, it's marital unfaithfulness in a sexual relationship. Fornication is sexual relationship of the unmarried, including sexual impurity. Uncleanness. What is that? It's moral impurity. Immorality. Filthiness. What is lewdness? Well, it's hedonism. I was into that as a, I understand that one more than I'd like to admit. What is that? What is hedonism? The idea of living for pleasure. Giving yourself a license to do whatever you want to please self. The world is full of that today. Idolatry. Giving worth to created things that in really reality you're using to replace God in your life. It's what you're, you're serving it with your time. Your personal abilities and your wealth. That's what idolatry is. A lot of that going on in the church. Paul, or John, in his letters to the churches said, little children, keep yourselves from idol. We have a tendency to want to do those things, put things before God. We have to be careful. Hatred, what is that? Just simply an inner attitude of hostility towards people, someone. Contention, strife, conflict. It's the result of rivalry that you may have with someone. These are all flesh. This is all the lower nature acting out. Jealousies, there's strong feelings of resentment for those who someone, for who someone is and, or for what someone has. It's usually sort of more relationship-oriented. Outbursts of wrath, that really probably doesn't need any uh, def- defining, but it's an, in, an intense expression of anger. Selfish ambition, that's the idea that you're only concerned about your own personal benefit and profit. Who cares about anybody else? It's all up, it's what I want, you know. Dissensions, disunity, same thing. A division in opposing groups, that's opinions getting to the point and then we group up and you know, have this idea that this is what we want to do versus what the other group wants. Heresies, literally factions or party differences. And this actually, heresies arise from personal opinions and then you're sort of pigeonholed and cornered into making a choice. And that's really sort of what it comes from. It's, it's choice uh, in that particular Greek word. But, and then envy. It's ill will towards someone um, maybe because of perceived advantage that they may have over you. And it's sort of possessions oriented rather than relationship oriented. Murders to deprive someone of life by killing them. Drunkenness, we know what that is, intoxication, revelries, drinking parties with unrestrained indulgence. So I've taken the time to define these so there wouldn't be any mistake. My flesh, your flesh, every flesh upon the planet, every human being has the ability to live after this and and do these things. Now there are those in the church who think, oh, I could never, ever do anything like that. Reread the list, please, and do not be self-deceived. 
We're all capable. We're all made out of the same material. Praise the Lord that you haven't gone down that path and experienced that and done some of those things because you made some good choices, but that doesn't mean you're not capable. And this is the point. We need to realize what the flesh is. There's no, nothing good in the fallen nature. There's nothing within fallen nature that could ever please God. Those that are in the flesh cannot please God, says that's what the scripture tells. And so without proper recognition of these things, we're going to fail to take the necessary measures that it takes to have a successful and prosperous walk with God. Now, let's just clarify this because it isn't just the Apostle Paul who, who figured this out and wrote it down for us. I'm glad that he did, but he was inspired to do so. But I'm pretty sure he got it from Jesus. Matthew fifteen eighteen. Jesus said it this way. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. They defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hand does not defile a man. And so you see that it is so important for believers not to defile themselves, to, to subdue the old nature and its potentiality to do evil so that one can remain acceptable to God. This is what the idea that Jesus is trying to communicate. The problem with the religious people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees of the day, they were measuring themselves and others by the appearance of and by the outward physical, what they could actually see. And they interpreted the law by the letter, not the intent of the law. And this is, uh, to me, what is important about the words of Jesus is that he is really describing fallen man, the lower nature that we have. And I think uh, we have to agree with the analysis of Jesus if we're going to... Proceed Now, when you come to this point in your life, it's, it's sort of like the children of Israel. I mean, you just, it's fear and trembling. I, I don't want to be this way. I, do, I don't want to admit that I am the, this way. I, and I've done some of these things, but it's there. For me, it was really easy because I was a hedonist individual. So, I, yeah, I get it. But for those of you who've grown up in a Christian home, and you've abstained from these things, it's kind of hard to see yourself that dark. But that's the potentiality within the fallen nature that we must recognize. And so Jesus sort of illustrated uh, this truth uh, by a parable in Luke 18.9. He spoke a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give tithes of all that I possess. You can pick up your barf bag on the way out. <laughs> and the tax collector, standing far off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, this isn't, you know, the idea of, of beating ourselves into subjection and mourning and, you know, beating ourselves up because, oh, this is what we are. It's just It's a simple honesty that God is after in our relationship with him. And this is really what was going on. This tax collector actually just essentially went to church. He felt unworthy in himself to even be before God. He had reserve in his heart. And as it says there, he stood afar off. He couldn't even muster up a look to heaven. And he beat his breast in guilt before God. And he cried out for mercy. He understood the holy nature of God and the sinfulness of his actions and his nature. The religious guy, on the other hand, justified himself before God. He compared himself to others and not against the holy nature of God. 
He could never see himself as one who would commit such crimes as this poor, wretched man of, of a tax collector. And so the idea, one was agreeing with God, being honest with God. One was self-deceived and lying to God, claiming to be something before God that he was not. We make no progress if we take that kind of position before God. And, and so there are those in the church of Jesus Christ who profess that they are fine. They're not big sinners at all. They have no need of forgiveness. They fail to grasp what lies within the fallen nature, the inner attitudes, the evil thoughts that cross our minds that arise on occasion. There, as Jeremiah states in chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Living in this fallen world brings trials and tribulations into the lives of everyone who lives. Nobody escapes pain on this planet. And you know, God, if he wanted to, he could deprive us of pain, but that would mean the destruction of the planet and that be, we'd go along with that destruction. So God is, in his mercy, in his love, watches over the trials and tribulations that we all are allowed to experience. It is in uh, those trials and tribulations that I have found, and I'm sure you found the same thing, that the reality of who I am comes to the surface. It's, you know, it's that, that the heat of the moment, the heat of trials, the pain, it causes me to become real and honest with God. I don't know about you, but I'm, when I'm under duress, it's a lot, it seems like confession comes a whole lot easier. <laughs> it's just the way it is. And so, just as the Israelites were learning the ways of Yahweh, we must learn the ways of God in our lives. The Lord made a distinction in the law, what counted, constituted moral uncleanness and what constituted ceremonial uncleanness, and vice versa. He showed them what was right. Today we have the indwelling Holy Spirit who teaches us what is right. It is the Spirit that helps give us distinction between what is acceptable to God and what is not. Your liberties, your conscience is a little different than the guy sitting beside you. Everybody has different levels guided by their conscience, but we have one Spirit that guides us into the truth that we need, and it's the truth of God's Word. What happens now is that we can harden our heart to the Spirit's conviction. God will never condemn us. He doesn't condemn us. He convicts us. The difference between conviction and condemnation should be understood. Conviction will always draw you to the cross asking God for forgiveness. God, I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. Please forgive me. Condemnation, on the other hand, is from the enemy. Satan loves to take your failures and beat you up, hit you over the head, as it were, like a, with a ball bat and just club you and, and drive you away. Condemnation will seek to drive you away from God. God really doesn't love you. You've done this so many times. He's through with you. And it always comes in the first person. I know I shouldn't have done that. I know, you know, just self-deprecation comes upon us. That's condemnation. It's not from God. Conviction causes you to repent. Not feel sorry for yourself and get wrapped up in that miserable self-pity. But to just come to grips with, ah, here it is. This is what it is. I'm sorry, Lord. I, I need forgiveness. I need mercy, God. Just being honest with God. That's how it works. And in doing so, you are drawn closer to him. I find that God's spirit is so gentle. He doesn't beat me up. But when he speaks in that gentle voice and I get convicted, I don't argue. There's no back talk. It's, oh, you're right. <laughs> It hurts. It's shameful. It's painful. I understand what the children of Israel were experiencing there at the foot of the mountain. Oh, man. 
You want to run and hide. But thank God for his gentle touch, gentle conviction. And when we respond in that way, his love comes rushing in. The peace, the joy. Oh, man, I don't want to ever do that again, Lord. I love you. I don't want to be a disappointment. You know, not that we're... He understands our frame. We just want to please him. We want to be pleasing in his sight. So if we fail to respond to the conviction, what does the Lord do? He waits. Okay. It's up to you. It's your choice. You're a free moral agent. When you decide you want to deal with that and you want to get closer, let me know. I'm right here. I'm not going anywhere. I still live inside you. That's pretty close, by the way. You have, he waits until you give him permission. Lord, I'm giving you permission to come into my heart, into my life, to make the changes that are necessary so that I can experience more of you and be closer to you. I know who I am. I know what I am. I'm not very proud of that, but I need help. I need deliverance. I need healing. I need transformation. And when you do that regularly before God over a process of time, you will begin to look like Jesus. You'll be godlike and be, you'll become a very godly individual. And that's what God is after growth, that your life might bring forth fruit, fruit that remains, fruit that glorifies Him. So, yeah, well, that's all good and well, Pastor, but how do I really get there? Well, first of all, repentance isn't just for sinners because we're all justified sinners, right? Repentance is for the believers. We continually repent, which means we turn to God. When we blow it, we turn to God. We don't turn away. We turn to God, and we stop the behavior. And God, help me stop this behavior because it's destructive in my life, and I realize that. And when I'm yielded, then the power comes. The ability to overcome is there. And here's the second thing we need to do. Wash ourselves in the water. Remember the, the washings and how they would have to wash. If something fell in uh, a body of water, then they would remove it, and then you know, sometimes they'd have to break the vessel. There's things, you know, it's in the law that we just, they're, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14, all that right there. If, you know, they break an earthen vessel, throw it away because you can't fix it. Other things that were leather could be washed. Well, you know, God doesn't throw us away. Aren't you glad <laughs> when we blow it? He loves us. And so he has left, left us his word. The washing and cleansing from the word of God. This is what Jesus told his disciples right before he left and right before that communion service. You are now clean through the word that I've spoken to you. Psalm 119. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed to your word. There's, there's nothing I can do. The only agent that the Holy Spirit uses to clean up my life and keep me from being defiled is his word. If I will hide God's word in my heart, it will transform my life. And it's, an, it's a glorious experience. And then you just stay away. Stay away from those things that defile. Watch what you see with your eyes. Watch what you hear with your ears. You can't unsee something and you can't unhear something. You know, it's... It's like trying to get the toothpaste back into the tube. It's just a chore that's just nearly impossible. You can't do it. So just stay away from it. Well, you're being legalistic. No, you're not. You're, you, first of all, your motive is, I love God and I don't want to do that because it harms me in my relationship with God. So it, in reality, it's not legalism. It's wisdom. Stay away. We, this is what we do with our children. Stay away from that, Junior. Don't go there. Ow! You know, see, we learn that over time that it actually hurts. Defilement brings pain into my life. It brings sorrow and disappointment. Yeah, but it felt good for a little bit. Not really. Guilt that follows. No, it's not worth it. So let's finish with this as we prepare ourselves for communion here. Galatians he, he, Paul doesn't leave him hanging there. Okay, you miserable 
low-natured people in the churches of Galatia. Figure it out on your own. No. He shows them what love looks like. Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such there is no law. Those who are of Christ have crucified the flesh and it's with its passions and desires. And if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in this Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. I love the way in, this is broken down, at least in the way I see it. We call it the nine fruits of the Spirit, but in, in essence, it's, it's one. It's love. But love, joy, peace, this is what I have when I keep myself in my relationship with God. I experience his intimate love. I have joy. Paul Peter says, joy unspeakable and full of glory. Just walking with Christ is a, such a delight. And peace, the shalom, the irene, the experience in what God has for us, the the tranquility of mind and heart. It's just a beautiful thing that God wants us to have. And then in relationship to others, I have, I'm given patience, the ability to suffer long with people. I'm able to be kind and express goodness. So I have a relationship with God where I experience love, joy, and peace, and then with others, long-suffering, kindness, and goodness. And then, but myself, how I relate, I'm faithful a gentleness, and there's self-control in my life. God covers every phase of our lives, every facet of our lives, every relationship of our lives. He wants purity and cleanliness and holiness in every part of our lives. But He is the only one that can make that a reality. You can't do it on your own. We all come on bended knees, as it were, broken with fear and trembling at His word. And in doing so, God imparts His Grace extends his mercy, and we walk in the spirit, and we learn to love. Now, the, few, the fellows are going to pass out the elements here, and the worship team's going to come and lead us in some songs here. And we want to take communion together as brothers and sisters. And if you guys will pass out the elements as I'm speaking, I think it would be good. God is so patient and so kind. And the relationship that we have with him is intimate. So as you bow your head, as we close our eyes and we partake of the elements together, it's important that we just go back to that first time that Jesus introduced this to the disciples. This bread is my body broken for you. And we, when we take the bread, we think about Christ on the cross. Think about it. Every bone in his body was disjointed. I can't even begin to fathom the physical pain that he must have endured. Now, I, I have a fairly high pain, pain tolerance for, uh, because I hurt myself a lot. I sort of get used to it. And I just can't even come close to imagining a dislocated skeletal structure of my body. But that's what would happen. The fatigue would set in as the nails held fast his arms and hands to the cross and his feet. And then his body began to just break down because of weakness and the muscles would cramp up and then lose their ability to hold and then he became disjointed. Not to mention the lacerations that occurred prior to that. Beat beyond recognition. Beard plucked out. The hum- and then the emotional side of the, the cursing and the blasphemies, the ridicule and the scorn. When he was ridiculed, opened not his mouth. Someone insults me, I want to 
respond. Jesus did not revile back. Willingly as a sheep just submitted. But the greatest thing of all that we can never imagine is that for a brief moment, for the first time in eternity, he was separated from his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what it means and how important it is to deal with sin in our lives. We don't want to be separated from God. That is the worst thing that a human being can ever experience, to be separated from God. And so as we take the cup and we take the bread, in the quietness of your heart, thank him. And then ask him to do that special gentle work in your life so that he can reveal himself to you as he is. Your life will be filled with so much love, so much joy, so much peace that you will never stop smiling. You will never stop rejoicing in what God is doing in your life. It is the way it ought to be. We're just simply justified sinners. It's a great place to be. So let's take the cup and the bread. First the bread. And I'll give thanks and we'll partake together. Lord, we know what this means. We know what it represents. And we just say thank you, Lord, that you were willing to take on flesh and become that sacrifice for our sins. Thank you for making that atonement through your precious blood. We remember, Lord, in Jesus' name. Then the cup, the cup, your love written in blood, a cup of redemption, Lord, a cup that was full of sorrow, but it became a cup of rejoicing and of which one day, Lord, you'll raise when all the saints are gathered home and you drink it afresh when the kingdom age begins, you'll raise the cup and we'll drink together, Lord. We have a glorious future because of what you did for us on the cross. Lord, hasten that day. And now, Lord, as we receive this cup, may you heal us from the effects of sin, the effects of guilt. May you renew us and strengthen us in our walk with you. May you fill us, Lord, overflowing with your spirit that we might walk in the victory that you have won for us. We raise our cups and give thanks and partake of this glorious victory in Christ. Thank you, Lord.